Canada's Internet Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Callahan. The Dot is a podcast that shines a light on the best and the brightest that Canada's Internet has to offer. The Dot is brought to you by CIRA, the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. We're working every day to build a trusted internet for Canadians. Today on the show, I talk to Denise Williams, CEO of the First Nations Technology Council, and my colleague Josh Tabish, Public Policy Manager for CIRA, about the Universal Broadband Fund and how it may or may not help close the rural internet gap in Canada. I also chat with my colleague Maureen James, Program Manager for the Community Investment Program, about the new grant funding window that just opened. But first, here's what's happening on Canada's internet. Some of you may be aware that CIRA recently announced support for a program called Shop Here from Digital Main Street. Shop Here is a program that helps small businesses pivot online due to the pandemic. CIRA is providing .ca domain names to hundreds of small businesses to help them survive and thrive during the pandemic lockdowns. And already we've seen some great success stories. If you want to learn more about the program, or even join it, go to digitalmainstreet.ca. CIRA also announced that we've recently opened the grant window for our community investment program. We'll be chatting a little bit about this at the end of the show with Maureen James, the program manager. But if you're looking for information about the grant program, you should visit cira.ca grants. There you'll find all the registration information, the deadlines, and the information required to put in a successful application. We're looking for Canadian nonprofits, charities, and researchers who have projects to improve Canada's internet. Okay, now it's time for my first interview. I'm speaking with Denise Williams, the CEO of the First Nations Technology Council, and I'm joined by my colleague Josh Tabish, Public Policy Manager for CIRA. And we talk about the Universal Broadband Fund and its many strengths and weaknesses when it comes to solving the rural internet gap in Canada. Okay, so today I'm speaking with Denise Williams, the CEO of the First Nations Technology Council, and my colleague here at CIRA, Josh Tabish, our Corporate Communications Manager. Uh, Denise and Josh, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, great to be here. No problem. So the, the thing we're here to talk about today is uh, the state of the digital divide in Canada. As I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, it's an, uh, an issue that CIRA has been very active in. Uh, it's an issue that we've been doing a lot of advocacy around. And, you know, we've seen some movement on the issue lately. There's been a lot of focus in the media. There's been some government announcements. Um, but obviously, we know that because of the pandemic and everything going on with it, you know, the digital divide is more critical than ever to address. So I guess I just want to start off by just asking, so what is the state of the digital divide right now? Uh, you know, where are we at in terms of, uh, of both the divide itself and, and how close we are to, to, to solving this issue, if we can? So I can maybe go first and kind of paint the national picture. And Denise, if you want to jump in and talk about what you're seeing out West with respect to your First Nations stakeholders, I think that would be great. And of course, any other thoughts you have? You know, if we zoom out and look at the country at the national level, we see a pretty significant digital divide. And this tends to fall along urban and rural uh, boundaries. But of course, we also have lots of suburban areas not far outside of city centers that have very slow internet. Um, and of course, the uh, you know situation is all the more acute in remote and indigenous communities, which I'm sure we'll hear more about in a bit. But if we look at the state of connectivity, we see that 
you know, roughly speaking, rural areas experience internet that is about 10 times slower than urban areas on average. The data from our internet performance test, which lives at performance.cira.ca, shows that these internet speeds are much slower across both download and upload. And of course, uh, this is hugely important for anybody trying to participate in the digital economy right now, um, trying to work from home, trying to, you know, if their kids are doing online learning, folks in outside urban areas are at a significant disadvantage. If we zoom out a bit further and we look at what the CRTC has to say about, you know, who has access to what, we find that less than half of rural communities have access to the CRTC's, you know, quote unquote, basic speeds, uh, which are 50 megabits per second download and 10 megabits per second upload. We see that about a third of uh, communities in uh, First Nations reserves have access to those speeds. So, you know, the situation is pretty bad um, and it has a lot to do with where you live and what you're able to afford. Yeah, and 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 you know a lot a lot of what um, Josh is talking about at the national level here in British Columbia in Indigenous communities, it's even further exacerbated, right? Because what what's happening here in British Columbia is we have really uh, diverse uh, geographic uh, region with a, a lot of nations uh, that are relatively small. So it, it, it's a bit different uh, here in British Columbia than, than the rest of the country. So we've got a lot of nations dispersed around the province that um, have not had access, you know, even, even remotely close to adequate all along the way. But uh, because of COVID, obviously, we've been able to, to daylight those issues a bit more in the media and to government. Um, and within our our own First Nations uh, leadership bodies, which which has been a good thing. But one of the things really lacking has been data. So data around the digital divide when it comes to First Nations communities and Indigenous peoples across this country really hasn't been collected in an adequate way. It is hard to know exactly what the extent of it is. But to Josh's point, it's pretty bad. We, we know that. And one of the challenges we've had in British Columbia, too, is trying to tell that story to government and industry. Because, yeah. you know, if you look at some of the um, data from the telcos, uh, they might be able to say, or Canada might be able to say, well, we, we're looking at 90% or, or, or more of communities are connected. Uh, here in British Columbia, we were hearing that rhetoric for, for about a decade, where, you know, there was this, this narrative that uh, First Nations communities are, are connected to adequate speeds. But, you know, this was the problem of definition where, you know, really what communities were connected to was 10 megabits or less at one point of presence that didn't make it into the community at all. And just because that was there doesn't mean that those community members can afford the incredibly high rates, right, that we all know that it costs to connect to the internet or that they have the hardware available in their in their homes to be able to benefit from it. So this, this question about uh, access is really multi-layered, uh, not well tracked or understood or evaluated, and then therefore not factored in to the programs and initiatives that uh, government and industry, you know, even with the Universal Broadband Fund, you can see uh, a, a lack of that data and a lack of that awareness in the way that that program has, has been built. We know the digital divide is 
widening and we know that you know programs and initiatives by government meant, meant to connect and, and to begin to solve for digital equity are actually at risk of uh, creating a larger digital divide in this country. So, you know, that's that's a lot of the work of the First Nations Technology Council. That's what we're concerned about um, is that, you know, even though we're, we're seeing a, a lot of investment going into this, potentially it, it's not going to serve those um, that that most uh, that are most unserved and underserved. Can you unpack that a bit for me? So when you say the something like the UBF might actually exacerbate the divide, can you maybe uh, just give me a little bit more context as to what you mean by that? Because that's really interesting, because I guess that would be counterintuitive to what most people would think. But I'm curious to hear, hear what uh, what your perspective is on that. Yeah, we've we've had a couple conversations with folks that have been doing community outreach with UBF, you know, to be frank, we've asked the question, have you spoken with uh, Indigenous organizations, uh, leaders, uh, to get the perspective on how uh, this huge fund is going to benefit First Nations and Indigenous people across the country? You know, their, their answer to that was that there was too many organizations. They were not able to, in the timeline, connect with us. Uh, so, I mean, organizations like mine, First Nations Technology Council, huge mandate in British Columbia uh, to connect all First Nations communities, build digital skills. We're one of the only organizations collecting uh, this kind of data and data on Indigenous people in the tech and innovation sector. Uh, we weren't consulted, for, for example. So that says to us that there's a big miss in terms of what those folks designing UBF you know, were, were able to gather in terms of um, data and input from our communities. So as a result, uh, what you see is the majority of those funds going to um, the big telecommunications companies ultimately, uh, because the timeline is so short to submit applications. It's only going to be large organizations uh, that have that capacity that are going to be able to submit an application on that timeline. You know, others are welcome to, to submit an application, but that timeline is so aggressive uh, and you have to have uh, previous experience uh, to submit an application. So a lot of smaller entities or startups in the Indigenous-led uh, connectivity space won't be able to apply. So as a result, we'll see a lot of money going into these big telecommunications uh, companies who don't have digital equity necessarily on their minds, right? So here in British Columbia, we're always trying to push uh, to, to see our communities get connected, but we're always faced with this question of, well, the return on investment isn't there for us. So we can't, you know, we can't connect that First Nations community because the density isn't there, the number of households isn't compelling for us. So that means First Nations communities get put at the, at the bottom of the list every time. So when we look at those numbers, like everyone, every Canadian will have access at uh, in 2030, First Nations communities we're looking at hopefully connectivity by 2029. You know that that's that's what we're thinking because we're the hardest to connect with. The, the, the lowest return on investment for these telecommunications companies. And the longer government keeps putting money on this fire, you know, the, the longer uh, I think digital equity is going to continue, um, continue to grow. I would just add that um, there are a lot of communities across this country who are very concerned about the quality of internet access in their area. Um, we have been working with over 800 of them to try and help fill in that data gap to kind of 
heat map the availability of connectivity in their region so that they can use that data to go to the federal government and say, you know, we need funding to improve internet access for, you know, folks in Durham region, for example, outside of the outside of Toronto. And I should mention that, you know, within that, the, that 800 uh, municipalities, there's about 110, 112 Indigenous communities that we're working with, uh, many of which are outside of BC, obviously. And there is a concern that they, amongst these folks, that they're not going to be able to get together and a competitive application in time for these deadlines. And there's a, a fairly significant fear that the universal broadband fund is really just going to subsidize the existing business plans of the big telecommunications companies and not leave, uh, not create space for new creative alternatives, such as communities building their own solutions, um, spinning up municipal uh, fiber projects, that a lot of that is going to get deprioritized. And I think that concern that we're hearing uh, certainly speaks to um, some of the concerns that Denise has raised. Yeah, so it's interesting to to see that perspective on the universal broadband fund because I think you know generally speaking uh, it was received positively and I know there was some issues with the timelines they announced it two years ago then announced it again and then announced it again and the money's been slow to roll out so it's really interesting to see some of the struggles that that, that you're outlining with the fund itself so is part of the problem here possibly that. Uh, I think, Denise, you mentioned throwing money on the fire. It feels like maybe the situation is they're prioritizing speed over maybe uh, making sure that the equity and the accessibility part is the focus. Would that be a fair characterization? Or, or what are your concerns around how that, or sorry, not concerns, but how could the program be adjusted to take into account your the concerns that you have? Yeah, and I, I'm that it, it is concerning you know for indigenous peoples as you mentioned that this was announced two years ago there there has been quite a bit of time between the spinning up of this fund uh the announcement and then this announcement uh i i really think there was adequate time here to do uh more consultation and um more intentional design of the program at, at this point you know i'll say in my career this is uh at least the fourth national connectivity initiative like this that I that I've seen and all of them have followed the same uh, mechanism for the distribution of the resources and the kinds of projects that, that get approved and so that's that is a concern for me is that uh, you know I have seen the rolling out of initiatives uh, like this that follow the same the same work plan and then end up not benefiting uh, you know our people and, and many Canadians you know, frankly. So what we're looking for, you know, at this time, we've sent a letter to the to the minister on this with a few recommendations, uh, you know, from the First Nations Technology Council. And I think, you know, what we'd like to see at this point is um, for a, a draft of an accountability statement uh, to, to First Nations peoples and organizations, you know, detailing more about the consultation process that did take place because as I understand it one one did uh, maybe not to the extent that we would have liked to, to see it done across the country but we would still like to understand what came of that consultation process uh, you know what what was heard what were the recommendations and what does that look like uh, how are those being incorporated into the implementation uh, of this fund or not and if not why not we'd also like to see a commitment of um, $50 million uh, for small scale Indigenous led projects uh, in underserved and under uh, unserved and underserved Indigenous communities within that core UBF 
fund to both Josh's point and mine, we'd like to see an adjustment of the application deadline um, to, to June 2021. We, we'd also like to see uh, them incorporate an equity lens uh, to the adjudication of the applications for the Universal Broadband Fund, uh, really you know, to distinguish and prioritize projects that are led by Indigenous communities and organizations. Lastly, and, and, and really important to us, we, we'd like to see UBF contract an Indigenous firm to conduct an early evaluation of UBF uh, to determine what degree the fund uh, has been effective in achieving the goals of connecting Indigenous households so that we're not waiting to the end of the program and you know, trying to tally up how many Indigenous communities were were effectively connected you know instead can we take a more agile approach and start to do evaluation uh early and often so that the program has the opportunity uh to to adjust and hear from indigenous communities along the way since that is something that we're, we're flagging was was an issue up front yeah i mean i'll, I'll jump on and, and and add when we look at ways the program can be modified to help achieve better outcomes i think all of the ideas that Denise just put forth are, are great. Um, but I, one of the things we're very concerned about at CIRA is evaluating these projects to make sure that they're delivering the speeds that they actually promise. So I know we've all had this experience where we get online or fire up Netflix and we see that loading that spinning loading icon load uh, you know show up um, or we have calls drop and we really you know feel that we're just not getting what we pay for uh, i think this is a pretty common experience across all canadian internet users and our data suggests that actually in a lot of cases folks aren't getting what they pay for and so one thing we'd like to see modified is what is the testing requirement on the other side of a project being built to ensure that publicly funded broadband projects are delivering the speeds they promised. As far as I can tell, that doesn't exist. You know, it seems like the federal government is largely going to take the internet service providers word for it, that they are in fact delivering the speeds that they get funded for. And I think that this is a, a challenging uh, issue in Canada because so much of um, the ISP's marketing materials and so much of their promises to the government are based on the speeds they're, they're able to deliver, you know, up to a certain threshold. So, you know, we, the CRTC bases its internet availability data on info from the ISPs that say, well, in this area, we're able to deliver speeds up to 50 megabits per second. And so the CRTC can say, okay, box ticked, these folks have basic quote unquote internet speeds available to them. But the challenge is that, you know, our independent data shows that that's just not what's happening in a lot of those areas. Very few households are able to achieve that, um, that 50 megabit per second target. So if we're going to be spending, uh, what's the number now, $1.75 billion? If we're going to be spending $1.75 billion over the next decade, what accountability mechanism is there in place to ensure that we're getting everything we were promised and not simply 
you know, subsidizing legacy internet infrastructure that's going to be out of date by the time we hit this. So, you know, the, the target. Um, so that's a concern we have. How, what is the, what kind of accountability measure is in place on the other side of this to make sure the infrastructure is delivering on its promises? And I, and I think that that question remains largely uh, undecided. Yeah, and so it's interesting, Josh, that you you talk about the difference between sort of the posted speeds and reality. Um, and I think, you know, um, one of the things that I've seen a lot is this idea that uh, there's been a lot of numbers thrown around. And one thing that I've not really seen a lot is what is the real impact of, of this, these projects and or the lack of this uh, access on these communities. And Denise, I was wondering if you could maybe address that. So, you know, Josh mentions, you know, you fire up Netflix and, and you see the spinning wheel. And of course, we know that there's, it, there's far more than just Netflix that's at stake here, particularly given the pandemic. And I'm curious if you have examples or, or, or anecdotes or, or just general, you know, data about how the, the, the digital divide and the gaps in, the, in these communities are impacting quality of life right now. And it's funny, you mentioned, I think earlier you mentioned that this has been a problem all along, which is really interesting because the, I think the pandemic has really brought a lot of these issues to the forefront, but these are not new issues for the most part. So I'm curious if you could provide a little context as to sort of the day-to-day -day impact this has on people's lives to not to either not have access at all or to have, you know, the kind of access where you're not really getting what you're promised or, or getting what uh, what you need to, to, to be effective on the internet, really. Yeah, sure. And, you know, thanks to the pandemic, I've had lots of time to do some research and reading about the history of of uh, you know telecommunications and and infrastructure and the regulatory system in Canada and I was really struck you know to see that telecommunications has really been designed controlled and regulated the same way since 1906 and CP Rail you know the the infrastructure being built across this country. Uh, you know, landing in certain in certain cities, uh, therefore creating economic growth around where those railway stations were, therefore, you know, impacting where telephony um, was was coming into communities. And that argument from Bell Canada back to, back in 1906 was that you know we're, we're not going to expand telephony out to a bunch of farmers when you know really the business model for us is going to be to be concentrating on where uh, economic growth is going to happen and it's around where these railway stations are so it really struck me i thought you know not really a lot has changed in the argument um, from telecommunications companies around who's worth connecting which communities get to have access and which don't and you know basing that completely on um, economic outcomes and determinants really doesn't align with the fact that this is a basic human right and especially in an environment where uh, this country really needs to be thinking uh, about how access to the internet and mobile services is an underpinning of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People in this country. And so we really have a lot of work to, to square our belief that uh, it's only those communities that are projected to have uh, the greatest economic growth worth connecting. And so, you know, I think that that's what we're experiencing here uh, through 2020 and COVID-19 is the impact of that kind of thinking. So 
in indigenous communities, I mean, you can imagine, you know, as Josh points out, that frustration and panic you get when you get a loading sign on Netflix, um, or you're not able to connect on Zoom in a way, and you have to turn off your your video, and it's not in the way that you expected or that you feel like you're paying for. Uh, you can imagine what it's like for you know a quarter of a million indigenous people here on the west coast who you know their kids aren't able to go to school, they're not able to be in the K to twelve classroom and high school classrooms, uh, college and university students, uh, you know, had to move back home. And so you can imagine what's happened for all these Indigenous learners who don't have access to the internet or hardware at home. This is less than 10% in British Columbia, less than 10% of First Nations communities, their homes have access to the internet. So that means thousands of our kids uh, are at home without an education because uh, because of these decisions uh, that have been made in this country. And, you know, obviously access to healthcare uh, is, is, really, is really impacted. A lot of people turning to online healthcare and, and clinics so that you're not having to, to go into places that you might feel you're putting yourself at risk. So this kind of, um, this kind of uh, exclusion of Indigenous people from online spaces means that Indigenous people actually, we have to put our bodies at risk to go physically into a clinic or physically into spaces because we don't have the luxury of access. You know, we don't have digital privilege. This isn't an option for us. So that's that's really significant and really scary and really real. And, you know, here especially on the West Coast, you know, today we have a lot of First Nations communities. My home community, Cowichan, is in um, the middle of a, a COVID outbreak. You know, these are these are really, uh, really scary, really concerning times. And I mean, it also it also affects uh, all of those Indigenous entrepreneurs, all those businesses. They didn't have this ability to move their business online and, and to start marketing in online spaces. And so I've been part of numerous uh, national circles of Indigenous entrepreneurs. Lots of them women, Indigenous women have been particularly hard hit uh, because a lot of uh, Indigenous women who are entrepreneurs have businesses that are all about, you know, services and moving, moving product. And that's just, we're not able to do that at the moment. So, you know, like I say, this has been going on for a long, a long time. And I think that, you know, exclusion of Indigenous people from online spaces because of this, this argument of uh, economic benefit to huge telecommunications companies is the continuation of a 150 year long history that this country has of excluding Indigenous people from society and from the economy just this time it's on the internet. And so um, I'd really like to see the government make some uh, significant moves, especially that's why universal broadband fund is so important. <laughs> you know, it really has this opportunity to set a new precedent and a new tone in how it prioritizes the connection uh, of our communities for all those reasons. Well, I mean, that I mean, I find that so that's news to me that uh, our 21st century telecom policy is based on 19th century railway policy. And I think it would be pretty shocking to a lot of people to to, to figure that out. And it, it just I find it really interesting, because I mean, you know, here at Sierra, obviously, we were, you know, we're looking at a bunch of different digital issues. And, you know, you, you mentioned businesses that are going online during during the pandemic, and we've seen a huge jump in that our .ca registrations are way up. We're seeing all kinds of opportunities for businesses to pivot online. So 
you know, and, and the government is pushing, uh, th there's a lot of programs involved in, in helping that. So it's really interesting to see that while we're pushing 21st century economic solutions, we are still reliant on 19th century telecom solutions that exclude uh, uh, communities across the country. I'm, I'm curious, there's been, um, you know, a lot of discussion lately about what kind of solutions can be can be offered here to, to you know, to bridge this gap other than the ones that we currently see. And uh, during the government's last um, announcement, they mentioned a partnership with Telesat for satellite Internet and, and what that might bring and some opportunities there. And of course, since then, we've seen a lot of buzz around uh, Elon Musk and his Starlink project. You know, I think one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of the, the you know, the buzz around satellite Internet, particularly around the, the Elon Musk led project? And it feels like not to single out that particular project, but it feels like maybe there's some momentum around satellite Internet in general and that level of connectivity in general that might be a positive for uh, for communities in Canada. And I'm wondering if, if you're feeling that or, or if you're just or, or if the problem is just too urgent right now to not think about those longer term solutions. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. You know, any any time that there's some kind of competition or disruption, I find that uh, exciting. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do think that the buzz around that has certain certainly made its way into Indigenous communities and, and circles. And, and there's a lot of questions around whether that that project or that approach uh, will be a, a direct benefit to communities like ours, or you know, at the at the least, will will it disrupt the current system enough that we you know we start to have uh, some other options and maybe you know starting to solve for some of those affordability issues and really pushing our regulatory systems to think to think differently and and you know perhaps more progressively. But yeah, we we've had discussions with with Starlink and one of the things that we found was that the um, the kind of Latin long that they're able to serve right now wouldn't benefit uh, communities here in British Columbia, uh, north of Prince George. Uh, as I understand it, that that may have changed al already. Uh, that's in the works to change. But, uh, you know, we, we by no means uh, think that that's a silver bullet to achieving connectivity. We do have a lot of questions about the the reliability of the technology what the what the speeds would be the cost the the cost structure in our conversations with starlink um you know it was it was pretty general in terms of what the cost of the the hardware is and how much the month to month month cost would be certainly competitive to what we're what we're facing uh now but i haven't seen any any pilot projects or any compelling data or examples uh showing how how this would serve some of the smaller communities who are, you know, in pretty dense forests in lots of cases, uh, by the water, nestled in mountains. Um, so I do have a lot of questions about whether or not that technology will serve the hardest uh, hardest to reach. But but yeah, like I say, it it is uh, it it is interesting in the way that I think that. Uh, the way to solve these connectivity challenges, especially for those unserved, underserved, hardest to reach, is not going to be likely one technology. It's going to be a, a number of different uh, technologies working together to achieve that solution, which is why 
you know, I, I think there needs to be room for Indigenous community-led projects and, and for municipalities to lead their own projects and be able to partner to uh, begin to uh, connect these different technologies in, in the unique ways that those landscapes and those communities and those peoples are going, are going to require it. You know, whether or not Starlink or these low Earth orbit satellite projects uh, will play a role in, in that mix. I'm sure they will. But to, to what degree and what degree of effectiveness, um, I think that's still that's still yet to be seen for me. And then there's that that bigger question um, just around, uh, you know, the constellation of low Earth orbit satellites, you know, in the universe and, you know, what that means for for data, data sovereignty, uh, security. Uh, I still have lots of those questions. And that's something that, you know, Josh and Sierra and others probably know more about, uh, uh, but it's definitely on the minds of uh, Indigenous people. Yeah, I think those are all great perspectives. I think you're totally right. Yeah, there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. There isn't going to be a silver bullet that connects the hardest-to-reach communities. You know, for folks who could benefit from something like Starlink, I have no doubt that they are really excited, especially in communities who have historically only had one choice, an internet provider, and that choice has typically uh, been kind of crappy. So I think that's going to bring uh, a lot of excitement to certain regions. But, uh, but to your point, Denise, you know, what is it going to look like? What combination of technologies and solutions is going to be required? You know, I, I think this is this is going to be hugely important. People often ask, especially on Twitter, um, well, is it re reasonable or realistic to expect that we can connect everybody? You know, is it practical to think that people in the hardest to reach places in Canada are should expect to have internet on par with urban centers? And I think the answer is that technologies exist. And the political will at least ostensibly exists. Every party says getting better internet to Canadians is a priority. No one's arguing against that. So I think what's going to be super important is, you know, changing our thinking to get outside the box and work with communities on the ground who understand the challenges they're facing to not only get better internet to more people, but foster a more competitive landscape in a country that has historically struggled with competition in the um, telecommunications market. And so I think to the degree that we can adjust the way we think about this and adjust how our, our funding helps empower these communities, that's going to go a really long way towards achieving some of the objectives that Denise sets out. And I also think that, you know, um, from our perspective at CIRA, we're, we're here to support some of that work, you know, whether that's through our annual granting program where we contribute, you know, over a million dollars a year to infrastructure projects in communities across Canada, or that's through partnerships with our internet performance test to assess the quality of internet access and build the case for why these communities need help. We are here to 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 help where we can, um, but it's going to take a lot more than than one org like Sierra, and it's going to take a lot more than one org like First Nations Technology Council. It's going to take uh, a whole change in in our thinking uh, as a country in terms of how we 
you know, overcome this adversity and overcome these challenges. So I think just to wrap up here, um, you know, we, we've, you've raised a lot of issues today, Denise, and I guess I guess there's a lot of different concerns around the Universal Broadband Fund. And it's interesting because I think there was a lot of positivity around the announcement. A lot of people, you know, I, I think and as I think as Josh mentioned, I don't think anyone is for at least the vast majority of people agree with the objective of trying to connect everyone and and that that should be the goal. Um, but I'm, but obviously, you know, getting from here to there, you mentioned some issues around geography when it comes to satellite internet. And obviously we, Josh mentioned some issues around, you know, whether, whether or not you get what you pay for and how to make sure that we're measuring it properly. Overall, what, what's your feeling about sort of the, the situation now? Are, are you positive that this is going to start to, to roll out in, in a good way? Are you optimistic that the government will listen to some of your concerns and, and sort of implement some of those changes or, or what's your view on how we move forward from here? Oh, well, I, I always remain optimistic. Uh, you know, the First Nations Technology Council exists to to play this role of lifting up the voices of Indigenous people to government and industry, uh, to be a thinking partner, to support government and industry, to make decisions that will benefit Indigenous peoples, and for this to be um, the work of reconciliation in this country. So I always remain optimistic and open and positive that uh, we will be able to to achieve these objectives and, and, and achieve them in a good way. I would very much like to believe that through the pandemic and, and through these challenging times that we've had, uh, you know, as a, as a country, as a society, and we've had a bit of a waking up around how important uh, this infrastructure is, how important access is, all of us can kind of put to bed the issue of, is it true that only some people uh, deserve to have access? Uh, is it a luxury? Is it, is it a nice to have, not a need to have? That, that conversation's over. And so I hope that the fact that we've had this, this waking up, that we can begin to uh, approach this challenge of connectivity and access in a new way. So I'm positive about that. And what I'm hoping is that we can ap approach the challenge of connecting all peoples and all communities, and especially those hardest to reach, including Indigenous communities, with the level of sophistication and complexity and time and effort that the challenge requires us to do. So it's not just about putting money in. It's, it's not just about aggressive timelines and big, big infrastructure builds. Uh, there's some nuances here. And I think there's an invitation to government and industry to think about how we might build differently to ensure that we are achieving those objectives and that we can be proud of the work we're doing today for future generations, which is what is, is really going to matter here. You know, if, if we don't solve these basic infrastructure issues uh, that have been going on for potentially over a hundred years, uh, we're going to have a future generation uh, of peoples who are not going to have uh, the skills or have, have benefited from the access um, to be competitive in not what's the new economy that it's here. You know, we're, we're living in a completely virtual, digital, digitally enabled economy. And so it is really important that, you know, for that we solve this now, you know, for, for all the reasons we've just talked about, but that we have a, a mind to future generations and the work that we have to do to ensure that 
we're getting those folks in good footing because you know we're we're already experiencing a lot of uh, you know climate crisis and big questions uh, you know on this planet, and everyone deserves to have information and a voice in that discussion, which means access to the internet. Yeah, I would add to that that there's lots of money out there for big projects led by incredibly sophisticated corporations. There's not a lot of money out there for community-led initiatives to help fill in the gaps that are being left by, say, the national telecommunications providers. And one of the things that we've done at CIRA recently is survey what kind of funding is available for community organizations um, like, you know, Denise's, uh, for academics, for others to, you know, actually fill in some of these gaps, create community networks, create small scale projects in small and far flung parts of the country. And what we found was there wasn't a lot of money for this. And so, you know, for our part, Sierra tries to contribute as much as we can back in terms of through our annual granting program, like I mentioned earlier, we give over a million dollars a year away to um, community-led digital projects or internet-related projects. But we really need to see that amount increase so that community groups can come together and help uh, patch the holes in our national connectivity in a way that won't necessarily be achieved by larger companies who are looking for a better return on investment. So I think that's hugely important. And then the second thing I would say is anything that gets funded, any internet project, any infrastructure project that gets funded really needs to be assessed by a, an outside third party to ensure it's delivering on um, the promises that uh, were made to the government. Um, this is a lot of money. We're looking at you know, $1.75 billion from the federal government. There's also the CRTC $750 million fund. I mean, there's billions of dollars, and then of course there's billions from the infrastructure bank. So there's a lot of money on the table and we really need to make sure that an accountability framework is in place to ensure that uh, folks who receive internet services are getting the best that they can get and are getting what was promised uh, in exchange for that public funding. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously there's a lot of uh, momentum on this issue now, and uh, obviously it's been a huge one at CIRA. I mean, we've done a lot of advocacy and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, communication on this issue, and I think it's just the, it's the kind of thing where uh, we don't ever want to think that the problem is solved until it's actually solved. So it's really great to see, you know, have this discussion about where those gaps are that are maybe being overlooked because it's, uh, you know, we're really hopeful that maybe some of them can get filled in the, in the coming months because as much as we hope that COVID's going to go away, uh, I don't think the digital divide is going to go away anytime soon. So uh, uh, Denise, Josh, thanks for being here. I really appreciate the discussion and uh, thanks. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thanks so much for having us. My next guest is well known around CIRA as the champion of the Community Investment Program. Maureen James is the program manager for that program that has recently opened a new grant window for the year. Okay, so today I'm speaking with Maureen James. She is the program manager for our Community Investment Program here at CIRA. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the program uh, application window that just opened up. Maureen, thanks for being here. Hi, Spencer. Happy to be here to talk about that. 
So the program uh, application window for the CIP program just opened up uh, about a week or so ago. Maybe let me know about sort of how's it going so far and uh, what is it you're looking for this year for uh, uh, applications? Sure thing. So this is our eighth year running the program. Um, and every year we have maybe a different focus on what we're looking for. This year, uh, we are emphasizing projects that are going to help with the internet in rural, northern, and indigenous communities, as well as for students. So those are our target communities for projects this year. And the people or the organizations that are eligible for our projects this year are nonprofit organizations, registered charities, and academic researchers. So researchers associated with a university or college. And I think what we might expect to see this year could be a bit of a bump in project requests, given how everybody is relying on the internet for absolutely everything these days. And the internet is not that great in a lot of places across this country. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that, because, I mean, obviously here at CIRA, we've noticed that pretty much everything we do has now become incredibly important. Not that it wasn't before, but the pandemic has really brought a, you know, a focus on almost anything to do with the internet. Tell me a little bit about what you're hearing out there from some of the different projects or some of the people who are looking into projects about, uh, you know, how the pandemic may have um, impacted their desire or uh, to uh, participate this year. Well, yeah. So we've been talking to a lot of organizations. In fact, we did some research uh, in the past year and produced a report about that called Unconnected, which you'll find on Sierra's website. And when we looked into the funding situation for Canadian nonprofit organizations and smaller organizations, it was pretty bleak. We know even before the pandemic that there were serious funding gaps in the areas of infrastructure and digital literacy as well as community leadership and cybersecurity. So those are the four funding areas that we actually offer grants in. And even before the pandemic, there were concerns from nonprofit organizations about how little funding there is for all of these areas. So that's why we're expecting with so many, so many organizations that have had to pivot their operations to digital that there will be probably a pretty high increase in the number of applications coming in. And I think where we may notice a lot of applications coming in is particularly in the infrastructure area, because so many communities really have substandard or perhaps even pretty much non-existent internet. I think on First Nations reserves, for example, only 35% have anything close to the, uh, the standard, the CRTC standard for baseline access. So I think we're expecting to see quite a few uh, applications in the infrastructure area in particular. And our digital literacy area is also quite popular, usually. So uh, we'll expect to see a lot of programs probably running out of schools where, where teachers or nonprofit organizations that serve teachers will be applying for projects, as well as at university level where uh, pedagogical approaches will be being developed for teaching teachers things like artificial intelligence or you know, how ways to safely nav navigate the internet. Yeah, and I know one other area that uh, we're focusing on, and in fact, from what I remember, last year was the first year we introduced it, is our cybersecurity area. And I was wondering if you could provide a little bit more context on that. Um, what are the types of projects that we're looking for in that area? And maybe give us some examples of, of ones that we saw last year in that, in that space. For sure, yep. Cybersecurity was introduced last year. Um, and we've had a number of interesting projects that have come in. The, the, the focus there can be on 
uh, developing tools that help people uh, use the internet in a cyber secure kind of way, or also on teaching and educational methodologies or research. So it's it's quite a, a broad range of possibilities. One of the really interesting projects that came in last year that I think may have been featured on your program previously was a, a simulated um, cybersecurity critical incident operations center that's being run out of the New Brunswick Community College, where they want to actually teach college students how to operate in an environment where cyber, cyber threats could be happening, cyber attacks, and how to actually respond to those, how to prevent them, how to mitigate, how to actually see them coming before they become a problem. So I think that's quite a neat one that's going to be uh, getting off the ground this year. We also had a project um, with an Indigenous focus, trying to uh, take basic cybersecurity concepts and make them understandable in an Indigenous way of looking at the world. So working with First Nations communities uh, outside of Brandon and in Manitoba and looking at how those communities understand the concepts that are involved in cybersecurity so that then that can be translated into curriculum for those communities, which is quite a neat project that's being done out of Brandon University. So those are a couple of examples, and I expect we'll see some more interesting ones this year. Well, that's great. So um, Maureen, just before we go, maybe you can just uh, provide everyone with a little bit of information on uh, how they would uh, find out more about the program and what the deadline is. All of the details about the program are on CIRA's website. If you go to CIRA.ca forward slash grants, everything you need to know is there. There's sections on how to apply, what the eligibility and funding criteria are, and then a direct link to the online application platform that we use where everybody would put in their documents uh, for an application. The, I think one part that I didn't highlight is that people can apply for grants up to $100,000 per project, but it doesn't have to be a high amount. If you have a small project, we look at projects at all range of amounts. And then we do have one project set aside for $250,000, so people can consider whether they want to do a big project or a smaller one. Um, and yes, the deadline is 2 p.m. Eastern time on April 14th, and we highlight the time zone because we know we'll have applications coming in from all across Canada, and our system for receiving applications does shut down at 2 p.m. on April 14th. And we really do recommend for people to try to get them in well in advance of that deadline because part of our process is we go through the, the applications for eligibility review to make sure that it's the right type of organization applying and has the right documentation that we then pass on to our review committee later. Um, so I think it's important that people try to get them in quickly and also to know that I think we're going to have an awful lot of applications this year. So do your best to, to tell the best story about what your project's going to do. Generally, we fund maybe 15 to 20% of the projects that come in. Um, so we always are looking for the best ones and all across the country, the ones that are most innovated with, with the most impact. So keep that in mind. But all those details are on the website. And applicants will find out in July if they are funded. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Maureen. Appreciate the information and uh, hopefully we'll get a lot of good applications this year. Thanks, Spencer. All right, that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Denise Williams, Josh Tavish, and Maureen James for helping me out on the show today. As always, if you have feedback, guest suggestions, comments, or anything else, you can email the dot at sierra.ca. I read all the emails that come to there and any suggestions are well appreciated. As always, if you're looking for information about any of the guests or any of the links 
that are related to today's show, you can visit sierra.ca slash podcast, and they'll all be listed there. Thanks again for listening and stay safe out there.